0: We are about to hear the sixth in our fascinating series of recordings of the Easter Rebels. Today you will hear the lost and recovered voice of Sean McDermott, to be followed by a live studio discussion of what we have heard. This panel will be asked to react to the voice and the ideas just broadcast, and to respond to queries from the public on related teams. You can contact the station on 087 69 At this time, there are many treatments of the theme of the 1916 Rising, but none as dramatic as this series. We hope that you enjoy and benefit from our broadcast of Lost Easter Voices.
1: Welcome to Lost Easter Voices. I'm Charlotte Tannen, and we are here to listen to another of these amazing recordings of the 1916 leaders. I have guests in the studio with me to discuss what we hear. We here at NEAR are fortunate to get to share these unique recordings of the executed 1916 rebels with our listeners. We listen now to the voice of one of the main architects of the Rising, Sean McDermott.
0: Now, Mr McDermott, if that is settled,
2: can we proceed, please? You may consider it settled. But I'm still not of a mind to cooperate. But
0: as I've explained, Mr. Clark has already queried me and accepted my research as legitimate. Why can't
2: you? Because I've been so successful through utmost secrecy.
0: Agreed. You have been exceptionally successful by keeping a wide range of thoughts and strategies from public gaze, I understand. But
2: you are now being afforded an opportunity to share those successful innermost thoughts when it can no longer harm your cause. You can explain just how close you came to crime. Well... Come, share with the Irish people why you acted so. How you plotted the overthrow of British dominance in Ireland. Perhaps it might act as a template for the next successful attempt. Very well. What do you wish to know? We'll start with setting the scene. It is the early morning of the 12th of May and I'm in the cell of Mr. Sean McDermott. We could start with where you were born. I was born in Leitrim in the year of 1884. We were a farming family. An education? Which schools did you attend? The school of life. Studying tram conducting, gardening, and barkeeping. In Leitrim? I had no idea it was such a busy place. No, and in Glasgow. I left home at fifteen and went to live with an older brother who settled there. While there, I joined the ancient order of Hibernians. I was for a time a constitutional nationalist. I also joined the Gaelic League. This and visits home to witness brutal evictions, helped to form my ideas of separatism. The centenary celebrations for 98 further moved me towards physical force ideas. I see. This was a gradual process. Can you recall when ideas of a violent rising finally formed in your mind? There were elements of it continually encroaching. I suppose my mind was made up before I even knew my mind. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. When did you join with physical force groups? Uh, Around uh, 1906, I joined the IRB in Belfast, but I noticed the loose talkers, and the more subtle ones. My natural instinct was to draw nearer to the reserved and to lead them to even greater levels of secrecy. My reading of previous Irish rebellions told me that every movement had been riddled with informers, police spies, and just plain gossips. If I wanted a successful revolution, then we must be the most furtive, ever. Circles and more circles, eh? Someone has been talking, I see. Relax, Mr. McDermott. I'm just trying to understand your modus operandi. What I don't understand is, if you were to be that secretive, how did you get anything done? At any given time, I had a clear idea what was required. Then, through restricted information and careful delegation, I got what I wanted done. And no more at that time. Looking for more would have meant divulging more information. Small, careful, crafted steps was the method I used. Well, it seems to have worked. You caught the authorities completely unaware. Tell me about the period between 1906 to 1910, say. What were you doing? That period, uh, let me see. With Bulmer Hobson, I was building up the IRB, making it a more effective revolutionary movement. Hobson? Was he important? No, he isn't. Initially, Hobson was with me. We influenced IRB policies towards an armed insurrection. We promoted those who supported it, and excised those who didn't. Then he opposed the plans for the Rising and put pressure on McNeil to oppose it. That's why Hobson spent the weekend of the Rising safely locked away. You mentioned excising people. Merely removed them from inner circles. Placed them elsewhere, where they could still be controlled without holding any critical information. Very clinical. Moving on, how about 1911 to the Rising? That was a period of intense activity. Our plans were ready. We created the Irish Volunteer Force to implement it. There was some disquiet among IRB circles who thought that the situation was slipping away from them, but the IRB Supreme Council had the matter well in hand. We placed people we could control in command positions of the volunteers. Such as McNeil. McNeil at that time, was one with us on the need for armed insurrection. When did this change? He became alarmed as we advised him on the tactics we would employ. He would have preferred open country guerrilla action. He felt entrapping ourselves in city locations was doomed to failure. We hadn't told him that this didn't matter. We were striking to save the withering soul of Ireland. Our effort might appear a failure, but the only failure in Ireland is the failure to strike. I'm getting a clearer picture of the differences now, but it was a risk to place this large volunteer force in such a pivotal position. Could you be sure you could control it? (laughs) circles, remember. I often addressed a meeting of a local volunteer unit in some rural location, and then later met the smaller, local IRB group, providing more confidential information. So, a tightly controlled revolution? Yes. I always felt entirely on top of the situation. This time the revolution had to be successful. We might not get another chance... You see, the nationalism of Tone and Emmet is almost dead in this country and a spurious substitute is offered by the Irish Parliamentary Party. We knew that the Irish patriotic spirit would die forever unless some of us died very soon. So, in a way, these executions are part of your plans? (sighs) If nothing better could be done to preserve the Irish national spirit and hand it down unsullied to future generations, then it would be necessary For some of us to offer ourselves as martyrs, yes. I must say, it takes some courage to plan your own debt. Who would listen to the appeals of men who are not prepared to sacrifice their lives? I suppose. Anyway, tell me about the actual Rising. During last year, we had our plans largely complete. We had forced the resignation of Bulmer Hobson from the IRB Supreme Council, and Clark and I were now dominating it. Who did you get to replace Hobson? I proposed Pierce, but others opposed him, saying he was too new to the movement others that he was away in the clouds but we elected him anyway as chairman so what happened then? we were ready in Ireland and we were talking to the Germans we regarded the expected outbreak of war as a golden opportunity for Ireland I knew we couldn't let it slip away myself and Clark stepped up preparations Ireland's long awaited hour was at hand you felt that this was the moment? yes I feel the Germans are invincible and this war will be a short one We had to come out as soon as the war started. If not... If not, if Redmond won, we'd have to talk of ourselves as inhabitants of that... Shire of England that used to be called Ireland. If we won, future generations would be able to live in a Gaelic-speaking country, rediscovering and strengthening its heritage. Talk about the outbreak of the Great War. What were your thoughts? What did you do? Well, the first big event was the split in the Irish Volunteers. Redmond made a speech at Woodenbridge asking every member of the force to join the British Army. This suited Clark and me. A smaller, more militant rump emerged. We could control these. A new governing body was formed. I was on this, as was Owen McNeil. How, with all of your meticulous planning, did you allow him onto the governing body? He was there first. McNeil proposed the formation of an Irish volunteer force to counter the Ulster Volunteer Force. McNeil was commander-in-chief, already in command before we began to infiltrate. Why didn't you excise him, as you'd done with others? We assessed his potential. In discussions with him, he expressed revolutionary ideas similar to our own. I see. You calculated that he could be used when the time was right. I'm not omnipotent. We had no reason to doubt his motives. He was still with us in resisting the volunteers fighting Britain's war. At this time, he shared our desire for a a military rising at the earliest available opportunity. We just differed on when and how this might be. With the outbreak of war and Britain distracted, our forces stretched. We could see no reason to
0: wait. In so deciding, you deliberately excluded your colleagues. I'm just trying to get a sense of this. Uh, are you saying that the IRB Supreme Council was not aware of many of your actions?
2: They were aware of what we told them. I recall being asked for a military update, and I said, we fight at the earliest date possible. That was the truth, and they needed to hear it. Had you decided on a date? Oh, yes, we had a provisional date. But we had a problem. Connolly and his citizen army were separately preparing for a smaller rising of their own. That would have ruined the surprise of our more substantial rising.
0: I keep hearing about this man, Connolly. I've just been given his name by the military. He's being transferred from Dublin Castle to Kilmainham. He seems to loom large in many narratives I've recorded. Tell me about him.
2: So they're going to shoot a seriously wounded man. Well, he wouldn't have wanted it any other way. Tell me a bit about him. God, where to start? I was one of the military council who discussed matters with Connolly over a three day period to arrive at a resolution of sorts. You see, Connolly is a socialist. His citizen army was formed to protect workers from police brutality. They were out in 13 and the lockouts. They have a very different view of Ireland after a successful rising. How would it differ from your vision? Connolly wants a socialist republic. Well, I want a nationalist republic. Could the two not coexist? Oh, no. Socialism is the antithesis of nationalism. It will enslave us. I'm for freedom. Connolly would sweep away Irish businessmen, as well as British businessmen, in a move to establish what he calls a cooperative commonwealth. Ireland free, in my view, would be run by Irish men and women. But wasn't it Irish businessmen who locked out Dublin workers and starved Dublin children just three years ago? Is that the form of republic you want? Surely some of Connolly's socialism would be worth considering? No, no! Connolly and his citizen army will be used in the fight, and then swept away afterwards. It's only a temporary notion, this socialism. I predict that in a hundred years, socialism will have been rejected, while nationalism will be in the ascent. Proof of the resilience of my ideas. Neither of us will be around to check on your prediction. But, did the IRB support those poor Irish workers in their dispute? Of course we did. We support any action that brings people into confrontation with the authorities. That's all. But your own childhood was poor, and you saw for yourself the evictions in Leitrim. How would your republic have solved such conditions? A Gaelic nationalist republic would solve all these problems without recourse to foreign ideologies. I'm using up too much time debating with you. Uh, Can you tell me about your role in the actual Rising, please? Of course. Well, Connolly became the military council's sixth member, and his army joined our planned uprising. Everything was now in place for Easter Sunday. On Holy Saturday, I sent word to our IRB men in all the cities, advising them not to leave their location without permission, and, if possible, to get confession, as there'll be something doing on Sunday. Then McNeil intervened. He had finally heard about the plans for a Sunday rising. He was resisting giving the mobilization order. You needed him to issue that order? Yes. The Irish volunteers were an army, trained to follow orders. McNeil was crucial. I went with Pierce and McDonough to his house to persuade him to join us. He would only talk to me I told him the entire plan How well constructed it was How it could not fail How we would allocate ministries afterwards He was unmoved But when I told him that German arms Would land in Kerry over the weekend He understood then That the British would move to disband the volunteers Violence was inevitable He said Well if we have to fight or be suppressed I'm ready to fight He accepted all our plans But I knew others, such as Hobson and the O'Reilly, were pressuring him to refuse to call the volunteers out. I said to Clark that we'd have to deal with them. And Sunday morning, uh, tell me what happened. McNeil objected to the plan in which volunteers were to be called out for an exercise, and thrown unwittingly into action. This was apparently too much for him. I woke to hear that he had countermanded the manoeuvres order. Ireland was betrayed again! I went to an emergency meeting of the military council. Despite Tom Clark's appeals, I agreed with the others to postpone the Rising till Monday, at midday. At noon on Monday, I went with Tom by car to Sackville Street. You have noticed my lameness. I couldn't march with the army, so I waited for their arrival. So the Rising was now a fact. What happened then? I went into the GPO and sat beside Tom. We were both exhausted by the effort over the last three months, but elated at the same time. I felt the Two targets I had set myself many years ago had been met. And what were those? That an armed rising was an accomplished fact, and that an almost absolute degree of secrecy had been preserved. Your rising went well. I must admit that I'd been reluctant to admit Connolly to the military council, but he was the difference militarily. With limited resources he constantly outthought and outmaneuvered the British military all week. The O'Reilly who had joined us was intuitive. As we watched the British set fire at the Imperial Hotel opposite our position, a young volunteer suggested they had done this to get a good bang at us. But the O'Reilly explained, No lad, that's to show us exactly what they think of poor old Ireland.
0: You may need to be brief as we're running out of cylinder.
2: Oh, well, briefly know. Uh, by midweek the cordon around us was tightening. The lower end of Sackville Street was ablaze. Connolly was wounded. Plunkett was feeble. I took more command. But Connolly, even wounded, was still the guiding brain of our resistance. But the bullet had done—severe damage. The bones were protruding through the skin. The medic supplied a tourniquet and a splint, but he was immobilized. We can take this out of slower pace. The tail requires a certain urgency. The military situation got worse. By Friday, we took a decision to evacuate the burning building. The O'Reilly fell. They led a group of volunteers across the open street. Then on Saturday, trapped in Moore Street, we offered to surrender to avoid the slaughter of civilians. At the Rotunda. I saw a volunteer, carrying a blanket. I told him to give it to Plunkett, as he was very sick but then. Was that brief enough for you? Nearly too scant. Let's see what else I need. You could ask me did the Rising achieve all that I'd expected of it? Well, did it? Yes. Yes. The people would see the light now. I also wanted to save the lives of our trained, battle-hardened soldiers, so that they could pursue the conflict another day. I was planning the next Rising. Even as we concluded this one you were a tireless rebel, sir I reminded the men before we marched out That we were not beaten That this was just a skirmish I thanked them all for fighting the gallant fight That future generations would of the them Even if now, many would think that what we have done is foolish I told the assembled group That now, it was their duty to survive We who will be shot will die happy Knowing that you will be around to finish the job What happened then? We were all crowded onto a small patch of grass beside the rotunda and a British Army officer, a Captain Wilson. A demon in human form spoke to the soldiers under his command, saying things like, Which are the Sinn Féiners, or the Germans, the worst boys? And they called the Sinn Féiners, sir. What should we do with the swine? Shoot them, sir. Aye, and shoot them we will. Shameful. The same gentleman returned with some followers as we tried to sleep. He would strike a match and hold it in the face of a volunteer and say things like, Does anybody want to see the animals? Aren't they beautiful specimens of Irish soldiers? He took my walking stick, and when I protested that I needed it to walk, he laughed and said he even take cripples in this Irish army. He was particularly harsh with the ailing Joe Plunkett. I heard young Michael Collins whisper, Get that man's name.
0: Oh, dear.
2: I'm sorry. Yes, others were more thoughtful. I recall one officer walking behind us as we stood and whispering, if any of you have any documents on you, tear them up and throw them away. What can you tell me about your trial? (laughs) Trial? How are you? I knew the outcome and so did they. I am to be shot. And if I was not shot, then all this would be worthless. But do you know what was particularly satisfying about the trial? What? when they called a DMP lad who had followed me for months. His evidence was stupid. He had not a word of inside information or anything of substance from all his shadowing. This vindicated my covert methods over many years of planning. Any final words, Mr McDermott? I'd like to roll call my gallant comrades. Clark, Pierce, Plunkett, McDonough, Chant and Connolly. Ireland will be rebaptized this week with the blood of such true men. I'm proud to be numbered amongst them. How are you all alive at the same time? Don't praise Providence too much. Remember, this age also gave us McNeil. You still can't forgive him? Never! He compromised our painstaking plans. Do you know that yesterday, as I was awaiting my trial, he was brought in by the military. He came over and tried to shake my hand. I walked away. Without him, we could have mounted a formidable fight. Try not to think about it now. You're right. My last thought should not be of him. I've had the priest. I've written my letters. Nothing left now, or to await my fate. When the priest was here, word came in that due to public pressure, the executions might stop. I might be spared, but imprisoned. Here was proof already of the impact of our blood sacrifice. I told father I'd rather be shot, but if they locked me up for 20 years, I'd do as Tom Clark did, I'd lay my plans, and when I got out, I'd have another go. Had you any visitors? I had two visitors by my request. I sent for Min Ryan and her sister. If things had worked out differently, I would have asked Min to marry me. Really? Yes. They spent 20 minutes with me. They told me what they knew about the areas beside the GPO. It seems that we gave them a good fight. I'm happy. Miss McDermott, I'm afraid that we must finish now. Thank you no thank you and god save ireland
1: We have in studio to discuss this recording historian Wilmot Hines. Hello. And we have panelists Roger Brazenby Hello. and Hugh Coy. Hi. Signora Maxwell Hogan is still missing, but Joe, our driver who collects her every day, is here in the studio with us. Joe, can you tell us any more about when you when you went to collect her? What happened?
0: I certainly can. Well, she's always waiting in the lobby when I arrive, but not yesterday morning. She wasn't. We phoned her room, but there was no answer. I went up to her room with the hotel staff and all her things were gone. Oh, mysterious. Not even a toothbrush mm. left. Mm. She had two big suitcases. I helped her up with them when she arrived and they were gone as well.
3: Oh, gosh. So, uh, I think there's foul play, no doubt. Oh. Uh, how would she
4: leave
0: the hotel with with all of her baggage, including the cylinder suitcase, uh, without uh, being seen? Yeah, interesting. You see, I checked that as well. And there's a backstairs leading to the car park. She could have gone that way. All being forced that way? Mm.
1: Well, with the Gardaí are checking airports and ferries, but there's no record of her leaving. It's very, very strange and worrying.
5: I fear that
3: someone
4: has those cylinders.
5: Or, here's an alternative thought. The cylinders were a fake. And the Signora knew she couldn't bring them to the National Archives without their experts discovering it. There's a thought. She's run out of time and she's fled. Oh please,
1: why would she do that? Near FM didn't give her any money for the recording rights. The archive were taking them as a gift. I mean, hmm. what would she gain? Hmm? There has to be another explanation. Perhaps if the they find her, we'll have an answer. Listen, right, we are on air and listeners are expecting us to discuss what we've learned about Sean McDermott. So, anything new or different? <sighs>
3: well, Hugh. I don't see any point in continuing. I mean, if they're fake... We're wasting everybody's time. Well, we don't know that.
1: I propose that we finish the series on the basis that the cylinders may or may not be authentic. OK.
3: The material's still fascinating. Let's continue then to McDermott. This recording is a confirmation of how secretive he was.
1: And I'm being told that we can extend our airtime in the hope that we will have some word on the Signora soon. We can keep going. Um. Hugh, you were talking about how secretive he was.
5: And his circles within circles. McDermott himself wasn't a dour plotter. He's regarded as being charming when necessary.
1: Women, I'm told, found his pale infirmity attractive. He used these uh, these qualities to further his aims.
5: He used uh, friendships
4: in a calculated way. For instance, he worked closely with Bulmer Hobson in building up the IRB. Yet, he had no compunction in imprisoning Hobson when necessary.
5: Not a man to cross, was McDermott's. Everything was planned in the smallest detail with him.
3: Uh, The interviewer spotted a big flaw in his plans, with McNeil in command of the actual force to be used in the Rising.
4: Uh, uh, McDermott explained that. McNeil, at the time, was at one with, with him on the need for armed insurrection. He just differed on the tactics to be employed.
3: McNeil was the fatal flaw in their plans... He was never going to go for a preemptive use of the volunteers. They should have replaced him with Pierce. I'm growing exasperated
5: with this Won't rising you story. Please no. don't. McNeil was missing the point. McDermott with Pierce and Clark, had a clear aim of achieving a blood sacrifice to save well, what they saw as the withering soul of Ireland. They knew that even with the full force of the volunteers aid, it, it would probably fail, but they would still win with their executions. MacNeil though I think found that hard to do with that sort of reasoning
1: mm, I think it would seem that McDermott displayed to the end a deep bitterness towards McNeil. what would you think of that? Or? Well he
5: sent for Min Ryan mm. as his time grew short I wonder did he tell her of his feelings at the end he didn't say
4: I think she suspected as she sought him out in the GPO during the fight to see how he felt about her she wrote afterwards that she approached McDermott in the, G- in the GPO saying, I suppose you will kill me for taking McNeil's countermand message. But he said gently, it won't make any difference. There was always going to be a fight. Hmm. This is just a different one.
1: And what do we make of his views on the war and, and Redmond's role? In?
3: Well, he, he got that wrong. Hmm. He felt that the Germans were invincible and the war would be a short one, presumably
5: with a German victory. He was totally opposed to Redmond's approach. Didn't he say that if Redmond won that we'd have to think of ourselves as inhabitants of that part of England that used to be called Ireland? He was also opposed to
3: Connolly's vision of a socialist Ireland. That would have made for a fascinating struggle if both had survived.
4: Yes, both men had a very different visions for a free Ireland. Connolly was well aware of what McDermott had planned for the Citizen
5: Army. OK,
1: I think let's stick with McDermott and we can deal with Connolly in his own time. Yeah, so okay? I, I,
5: I think we should acknowledge that McDermott's clarity when it came to socialism, he said it would enslave everyone.
3: Socialism surely stands for love of one's fellow. Yeah, a priest could offer that. <laughs> but a socialist might mean it.
1: Dear God, please. Okay.
5: Well, he achieved his goal in the burning GPO with the city in upheaval he felt that the people would see the light Ireland's soul was saved and Redmond's English shire would be rejected isn't that how he viewed it in his final hours yes he told the
4: assembled group that they who would be shot would die happy
1: he was quite sanguine about being shot wasn't he saying that if he was not shot then all this would be worthless that's a special kind of bravery
3: mm, it's a special kind of something
1: Yeah, Uh, sorry, wait, I'm being told that the hotel CCTV footage shows that the Signora did not leave by the front lobby at any stage and, oh my God, and they say that the camera to the rear staircase is broken.
3: Oh, it was broken by someone. Will you stop? I don't buy your conspiracy theories. (laughs) I know, you wouldn't even buy my conspiracy theory about the Republic. You never stop criticising, do you?
5: And have you any solutions? No, no. Roger, please.
3: I'm still at the morning stage. <laughs> yeah, but that's been obvious all
5: week.
1: Yes, but helpful. Mm. Doesn't everyone think that Hugh's yeah. comments have been helpful?
5: No, he's been very critical of our Republic. We Irish are proud of our Republic. <laughs> What's to be proud of? No.
3: Let's contemplate matters further.
1: <laughs> please continue. Oh, does he have to? Roger, <laughs> while we're waiting on news of the Signora. Roger,
3: In the please. early 1920s, with the visionary poets shot, it fell to the sons of peasant proprietors to build the new republic, petty landlordism, commerce and piety hellsway sway, for the gombean man is very pious. <sighs> so the new republic was built on the holy trinity of church, state and people, but in that order.
5: Tell me, though, what's wrong with that as the foundation of a free democratic society the message then and now is
3: best little country in which to do business there does not seem to be any other description of Ireland available no philosophical, cultural or social model is put forward
1: but it's a practical republic surely and it works no
3: it doesn't Hugh, what do you understand a republic to be? a republic as I understand it is a place where all citizens are equal. I mean equal. The definition
4: of a republic is a state in which supreme power is held by the people and their elected representatives and which has an elected president rather than a monarch.
3: But it's also about economic equality. No,
4: that's the definition. Their citizens have equal rights to elect their
3: representatives who make the laws and shape the state, and we're back to square one. Isn't that my point? We have a doyle of mostly gumbeen enthusiasts who we could paraphrase Yeats in speaking to our politicians. What bad talk did you listen to that you grew so crooked?
1: Oh, Hugh, that's a bit harsh now, surely. Oh,
3: I don't think so. The social revolution, imagined by Tone, Davis, Pearson, Connolly, was considered entirely irrelevant to the needs of the new Catholic middle class. Why do you keep attacking the Catholic middle class? I mean, they are the backbone of this country. I'm attacking a mindset that defeats all our best efforts to establish an authentic republic.
5: (sighs) I think it's unfair to keep suggesting that a state with a business ethos can't be a republic. A fair point, Roger.
4: In Europe, states in the Middle Ages took two forms. Those states controlled by a landed elite were monarchies and those controlled by a commercial elite were republics. Hugh seems to be suggesting that we have arrived at a middle ages type republic uh, controlled by commercial and professional elites.
3: Exactly. Check the background of the loyal
4: deputies. I think, Hugh, that Pierce did sense that future revolutionaries might inadvertently consolidate the very order they set out to overthrow. He felt that we might topple a great tyranny while creating our own little
3: tyrannies.
1: Well, but things are not that bad. We're not that much adrift from what rebels wanted, surely.
3: (laughs) Look at us. Over the years, the voices of Pierce, McDermott and Connolly have grown fainter as the Republican aspiration dies. A true republic includes everyone on this island and everyone on the neighbouring one in a new radical arrangement of equality of all. Do you see that happening? No, no, such wild imaginings can never produce anything. Just once, in 1920, we had the chance when all people looked to their leaders to establish such a society, and they were failed.
1: And why did it fail, Hugh? What do you think?
3: (laughs) Another unholy trinity? Gombeens, shonines and sleevings? You
5: you really think you know us, don't you? You don't know Ireland at all. You know, Hugh... Around
4: 1907, James Joyce saw something of this transition within Redmond's Irish Parliamentary Party. He wrote that from being peasant sons, street traders and clientless lawyers, they became salaried administrators, factory and company bosses, newspaper owners and large landlords.
3: See, it's not just me saying this. Joyce also said it. Oh,
5: well, I mean, if Joyce said it, then that's that, right?
1: But what are you and Joyce actually saying, Hugh? I mean, you seem to be criticising people for seizing the opportunity to implement their worldview. I mean, they believed in commerce and monetary interest. It would have been bizarre if they'd introduced a socialist republic.
3: (laughs) Isn't that what Connolly advised? that history shows that the bourgeois revolutionaries of today become the conservatives of tomorrow.
5: Oh, yeah, stating the bleeding obvious there. Oh, please, obvious,
3: Roger.
1: No. Language, what's please. What's
3: obvious is that people Logis. voted for radical change and got a reactionary one. Most people just wanted rid of the Brits.
4: The green paint was enough to be getting on with. Most people were as conservative as their politicians, say Hugh,
3: and still are. Oh, I suppose...
4: The citizens of this republic keep on electing from the same political gene pool. And Hugh, you like quotes, didn't show sure say, people are entitled to be misgoverned by themselves rather than be efficiently repressed by others.
1: Wilmot, do you agree with Hugh's bleak assessment of the first doll? Hugh
4: is shaping a republic in his head. Hmm. People people by Pierce, Connolly and Tome. But you, Pierce, Connolly and Tone were not elected to the Dáil. We have to deal with those who were democratically elected.
3: Yes, I know. Successive Dáils have allowed the new Irish middle class to expand their commercial kingdom. The shops got bigger and housing, health and education became commodities. And the remaining actors departed the stage. Yeats removed from the Shannon and Griffiths dead any last chance of troublesome ideas were deleted.
5: (laughs) Are you finished? I I mean, are are you saying
3: that we've developed nothing of value? Listen, a copy of the proclamation, freely distributed across Dublin at the time, was recently sold for 390,000 euros. Did Connolly hoist the flags of freedom over the GPO in the hope that they'd increase in value? Uh, I agree.
4: Oh, yes. <laughs> there is something unseemly about this kind of commercialisation of the event.
3: We hmm, shouldn't be surprised. Everything is for sale in a gombean Republic.
1: So, have we achieved anything?
3: During this series, we've been trying to identify the legacy of 1916... I am convinced that all the rhetoric has been subsumed into one word stability. Stability. Yes. After a decade of turmoil, the new Irish Doyle promised most of all stability by leaving most things as they were. Generations of citizens put up with growing inequality, stagnant social justice, and blatant political cronyism to ensure stability. That was the deal. what's wrong with that? It's understandable. After 800 years, some stability was welcome. That was your collective pact with the new ruling class. Do you know the worst part? The Gombeens broke their sides of the pact. The Republic has been thrown into massive instability due to their uncontrollable greed. We, in this Republic, are happy as we are. Whatever you say. (laughs) Yeah, then I guess ignorance is bliss. Citizens are ill-served by political rhetoric, which hides the economic realities of 1916 and 2016. History keeps repeating itself. History, history, history. You're relying on history to inform you. History is instructive. In my reading on Ireland, I've met the bloated faces of the landed gentry, the hungry faces of the landless poor and the shamed faces of the civil enforcers. I realised then that Ireland has no real face of its own. And that was the past. Things in Ireland are better now, you know. That are still bloated faces, hungry faces and enforcing faces. I would never be able to settle in such an ambiguous place. And I suppose Liverpool is better, eh? I don't expect anything from a British place... Here you have nothing to cheer about either.
5: We've well, we something to cheer about. We've just come through the worst crisis
3: ever to face us. Oh, great. Your economic model has survived the <laughs> financial crisis. All is yeah. well with the Republic. You
5: know what? Fuck you. You can Let- see all Roger, this so clearly
3: now. Roger, please, please,
1: Roger. Please. I'm going to have to ask you to stop, OK? Please, remember, we're live on sorry. air. Sorry. OK? That's the last time. I'm Sorry. Okay, I apologise to our listeners, okay? So, Hugh, can I ask you, what is your solution?
3: A rich imagining of an Irish reality occurred in the early 20th century, but all such creativity has paused. It's time at the start of the 21st century to resume this visionary work. You know, we're doing all right. Are you? <laughs> Your recent economic collapse was due to the activities of those who've taken Gombeenism up from the grocer's shop to the global finance level.
1: These are respectable business people.
3: A pinstripe suit can't hide the venal heart of the Gombean. But
1: they seem to know how to successfully run our society. They don't!
3: Their obsession with land and property is unhealthy. This centuries-old obsession to finally own something Distorts every other human and, value. And you could just see all this in your brief visit, can you? It's just- all too obvious. Engels made a brief trip to Ireland in 1869, oh, here we go. and quote, no, and Engels wrote, "The worst thing about the Irish is that they become corruptible as soon as they stop being peasants and turn bourgeois." I've seen the same thing this week.
1: Enough, please, okay. We're still hoping the Garthy will have something soon on Signora Maxwell Hogan and the missing cylinders. Oh. I'm i am told we're going to go to a musical break and be right yeah. back, so stay with us, please, OK? Yeah. <coughs> <coughs> this is a terrible end to the series. Yeah. Yes, I know, Wilmot. What can we do? Where the hell is she? What? Oh, I'm still on air, OK. OK, and welcome back. I have in studio... Um, um, listen, uh, can we look at uh, MacDiarmuth's differences with Redmond on conscription, please? Uh, uh, yes, Wilmot, uh, thank where, you.
4: Where, where Redmond and his modern supporters are wrong is not to recognise that the 1916 rebels right. saw their action as a blow against global imperialism, whereas the Great War was a clash between those imperial powers.
3: With working
5: class soldiers on both sides as fodder. I want to say to Hugh, you know, you you do nothing but belittle our institutions. Some of us are proud of what we've achieved.
1: Please don't start again. Look,
3: it's possible that the majority of that first oil felt inadequate as they look back to the creative energy of the previous decades. It was as if Hyde, Cusick, Yates, Pierce, and Connolly had drawn on the vitality of the near future, exhausting
1: it. Yes, possibly they were intimidated. Possibly.
3: But 100 years on, we've had time to re-energise. What can we now do with the revived energy and awareness?
5: The first Doyle worked with what they had.
3: The ideology of the first Doyle was that it represented something new in the world. When we just got out tins of green paint, it was business as usual. This was closer to the ideas of Pierce and McDermott than Connolly. Hugh, the gap between Pierce and Connolly was not as wide as you imply.
4: In uh, the separist, separatist idea, Pierce wrote, I agree with Tone. If the men of property will not support us, they must fall. That's almost Connollyish. Oh, I suppose. Right. It's... Uh, And as well as that, is it fair to be so critical of an impoverished state and inexperienced leaders? I'm
3: criticising the self-delusion. The new Irish Republic presented itself to itself as a dynamic new form of society, which in no way represented the hated old regime. Well,
5: I think they did well. What's so wrong with what we've created? Over the past
3: hundred years, you've managed to devise and support a political system that preaches equality with an economic system which thrives on inequality and produces inequality as a matter of course. What
1: do you mean by that? That's
3: quite simple. Successive Irish governments love the Republican notion of equality as long as it does not offend the capitalist system of inequality.
5: Um, more wordplay. You should show respect for the 1960s. I am leaders. showing
3: respect. The 1916 leaders invested their short lives in our future. What value do we place on such a sacred act?
1: Great value, but I suspect, Hugh, you want more. We should
3: initiate a period of natural introspection so that we can look at...
1: Please, just tell us, what should we do?
3: You have to take a deep breath and start again from scratch. A revolution in 2016 must create a republic of treating all the children equally. That will reconfigure everything else. Hugh, look
4: (laughs) what the markets did to those who opposed them in Greece. Do you really think that global capitalism and the entrenched Irish gone as you termed them,
3: will allow that to happen? (laughs) This may sound like a naive answer, but that's for the citizens of a republic to decide. It is a naive answer. Look once the irish stood together and defeated an empire now we're individuals individual consumers i want lower taxes for me i want better services for me
1: people have to look after themselves Hugh.
3: remember in the early 20th century we devised a vision of solidarity and drove the colonizer out now you've abandoned any attempt at a shared vision a vision capable of inspiring us to create an equal society.
1: But economic growth and jobs are the answer to all this, no, surely? No,
3: they're not. Both your broken society and your broken economy oh, are the result of creating God. a culture of inequality. And you know the odd thing? An equal society is better for all, including the well-off. <laughs>
4: Try telling that to the millionaire.
3: <laughs> you need to overhaul Article 10 of your constitution. It confers too much ownership onto individuals and corporations. This is the breeding ground for all the inequality you witness.
5: And now you're a constitutional lawyer as well, is that it? You're talking poppycock, Hugh.
3: My poppycock may just be nonsense in the wrong place. What? Can you hear that buzzing?
1: What? Is there buzzing, yeah? Sorry, can anyone hear buzzing? No.
3: No. Uh, Are you saying it's in my head? (laughs) It's not... This buzzing has been pumped into the studio because someone Um, doesn't like what I'm saying. Hear it, listen, buzz, buzz, buzz.
1: Hugh, Hugh, (laughs) sorry, Hugh, are you all? Hugh, are you all right? Buzz, I can't think. But um, are you having a nervous breakdown?
3: (laughs) Maybe having a breakdown, (laughs) but I'm not nervous. Take it easy, Hugh. Uh, Don't be. It's hard to think with this noise.
4: Relax,
1: Hugh. Um, listen. Can we get a drink of water for Hugh, please? Indeed, thank uh, you.
3: Indeed, Uh, calm down. You've taken all this too
1: seriously. It is
3: serious. We need to revisit that revolutionary period to discover our overlooked mm. futures. This is a hopeless proposal. Shh, Roger, please. It's please. not without hope. <sighs> a century ago, there were blazing hopes. You. Clashing, smashing into can each get other. Some water here, please. I envied them, the rebels. They died while their republic was still a possibility. A now most of those positive hopes are unrealized. Fallen away to be replaced by. <laughs> You,
1: you're upsetting yourself and, and everybody else.
3: Where now is the focus of people who knew what they were doing and spent a life doing it? They use the invader's language oh, as a shield God and a sake.
5: sword. Uh, this shit has to stop. He's sounding, he's to
1: sound like you saying you "Roger, don't <laughs> upset us." We Julius need a 21st <laughs> century uh,
5: revolution. Oh, well, your Street and ruins again. not
3: All real revolutions are about a vision, oh, and a vision please. to be can be attained in many ways. So, not
1: bloody revolution. No,
3: bloody revolution is probably the least effective way to materialize a vision. The majority of you who are only bystanders in the unfolding of the current, mean-spirited vision need to assert that this mercenary wraith does not represent. You. I don't
1: understand. Your
3: parliament represents oh, a narrow element of society, just a few actors from the throng. The audience need to command the stage and represent themselves.
4: Hugh, Hugh, <laughs> the people adopted a constitution declaring well, a republic. Well, uh, the
3: people need to scrap Section Ten and endorse a democratic, what's it called? A uh,
4: democratic program, but. We have achieved a
3: republic. I, I, you should acknowledge they that. They called it a republic through their dentures. <laughs> what is this then? The, the false teeth it's, republic? It's,
1: it's, it's a port thing. Crumbling as it,
3: even as it was being erected. Okay,
1: uh, Hugh, please relax. Please, okay can I just ask are you feeling okay you're, you're quite pale oh, this buzzing
3: oh, listen, <laughs> when there is perceiving there is a suffering a you know the, 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 the pain
1: the pain oh, of an actual loss can we just relax. I relax? we should take a break just take a break can we just take? go to a music break please
5: <laughs> dearest mother I am writing just to say I won't be home. There's something that I
1: have to do. And we're back. Yeah. Are you OK there, Hugh? Ah,
3: uh, yes. Thanks, thanks. Yeah, the, the, the buzzing is ease. Good, 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 <laughs> I, good. I notice, Hugh, you.
4: you have switched from including yourself in references to the Republic to distancing yourself. Is this a conscious decision to leave?
3: I feel like I'm sitting in a little wooden tub in the middle of the Irish Sea. I'm stateless.
4: Roger is right. You have been harsh in
3: your criticisms.
4: I also agree with you. Too much of the rejected culture was retained. But it's hard to undo in years what took centuries to assemble. We have had a
3: harsh history. A harsh history indeed. Every Irish person is a shadow of what they might have been if history had been kinder to them. My point is, I suppose, that it's not too late to start exploring your more substantial selves waiting in the shade.
1: We're not that bad, you know, Hugh. Some things you said were offensive. Oh, I'm
3: sorry if I offended anyone. I'm speaking out of disappointment, Charlotte. Uh,
1: So, you've exhausted your thesis then? You've certainly exhausted us.
3: Oh, yes, only to say that the 1916 potential is still available, you know. You still have the keys to Pierce's school and the keys to Connolly's cooperative shop. You set a stiff task for an outsider. (laughs) (laughs) A real republic sets high standards for its citizens and even higher ones for its governments. But you're right, Wilmot. I'm an outsider. As an outsider, I'm very disappointed with the island I've observed on my first visit here. Anyway, I think you Irish talk too much. I'm on my way back to Liverpool. Good luck to you all. <laughs> uh,
1: where are you going, Hugh?
3: <laughs> I'm going to pick up my ass on the way out. Oh, That's so long,
1: Hugh. Uh, I think he's actually gone.
5: Yes, it, it appears so. Good riddance. We have a fine republic, I say. No, seriously. (laughs)
4: Charlotte, uh, looks like you've lost another guest. Uh, To lose one guest is unfortunate, Uh. but to lose two is careless. Yes, I
1: know, I know. Oscar Wilde. (laughs) What are
5: are we going to do now, though? The programme is unravelling, Charlotte.
1: Mm, I'll decide if it's unravelling, if you don't mind.
5: Um,
4: Yes. um, uh, I think the emotional pressure on us all is beginning to show.
1: Please, please, I have a programme to complete. <sighs> Anyone, anything else to say about... Let's say, about Sean McDermott? I'm afraid
4: we've run out of opinion, my dear.
1: Wait, hold on. Well, sorry, wait, they're telling me that someone rang to say that they saw a woman with a suitcase walking along the M1 early yesterday morning. Well, this has to be her. I'm being asked to get the caller to phone back with more details caller if you hear this would you please phone our station on zero one, eight six seven eleven ninety? we need more details to identify senora maxwell hogan so please please call us
5: and this could just be a coincidence those details are pretty sketchy it could just be a different woman with a suitcase or maybe (laughs) she had a nervous breakdown
4: that's a third explanation Mm. to Mm. add to the mystery
1: she she always (laughs) seemed very very calm i'm Told we're going to do another piece of music. Um, uh yes. And listeners, don't forget tomorrow at the same time uh, we'll finish the series with James Connolly. Uh, so tune in then in tomorrow. Okay. Thank you, Sloan.
0: You have listened to a special programme dedicated to the life and death of Sean McDermott. We would like to thank Signora Maxwell Hogan for allowing us to digitally enhance the original Edison recordings from the period. We'd also like to thank our own Charlotte Tannen for hosting the panel discussions. And we'd like to thank her studio guests Hugh Coy, Roger Brazenby and Wilmot Hines. Tomorrow, at the same time, we'll broadcast the voice of James Connolly. Until then, Sloth. This programme was funded by the Broadcasting
1: Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.